Kia ora koutou and welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Good to have your company. We have Julia Hartley-Moore and Simon Powell today. A lot of uh, emails around trikes. Huge fan of trikes and bikes. Lots here on the Kapiti Coast, including a number of groups who meet and ride regularly on our Stride and Ride Path network. And Susan says, e-trikes, these are all the rage in Japan. You go from e-bike to e-trike. They come in all sorts of awesome colours and speeds. The only tricky thing is for e-trikes is the parking. They take up a lot more space than regular bikes. So massive in Japan. And I'm just, uh, goodness me, I'm just uh, checking out my um, Wikipedia page, Julie Hartley-Moore. It's quite personal, isn't it? It is. I thought, my goodness, that's something I learned about Wallace today. Yeah. Can you change it? Or is it just, can I change it? I, I'm, look, I'm, I guess you can. I have yeah. no idea. I didn't do mine. I just Fascinating. thought all of a sudden I had one. Yeah. Anyway, we all know New Zealand could do a lot better when it comes to mental health. Now, health boards across the country are reporting higher demand for child and adolescent mental health services in the wake of COVID. But just when we need the most, many of our mental health service providers are very understaffed. All this on the back of a review just out, finding no change to mental health services in five years, despite that $1.9 billion funding boost. To discuss, we're joined by the Chair of New Zealand's Faculty of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, Dr. Tanya Wright. Dr. Wright, kia ora. Nice to have you on. Dr. Wallace, thanks for the opportunity. Just on the back of that last point, uh, that review, no change in mental health services in five years, despite that, remember that, that historic um, near $2 billion funding boost. How do you see that? Oh, look, it was, it, was, it was really good news to hear that child wellbeing and mental health were key government priorities when that was announced and um, such a large body of funding. Um, it's fair to say that COVID was an unprecedented event and that the pandemic has probably derailed any of the systems that support children um, at the time that um, we really need greater collaboration and we've seen the needs, particularly of children, um, escalating quite significantly. I think one of the reasons that uh, we're looking at quite a lot of workforce issues, I think probably across the health workforce there are a lot of issues, Mm -hmm. but people are talking about um, compassion fatigue a great deal and um, overseas people are talking a lot more about... um, uh, uh, what people are talking about, moral um, inability to provide the services that people need and that moral injury is one of the issues that um, drives the big quit across all professions. In terms of child, adolescent mental health, where are we at at this juncture and why is it so hard to get an appointment with a mental health professional? Well, I think um, here Ara Oranga did promise that we would see services developed for mild, moderate and severe. And at the moment, we're just beginning to see the rollout of primary sector and school-based mental health services. But as I said, it's happened, um, as people are talking about, it's really happened at the cost of the secondary workforce because there's only so many people. And so whilst this might have um, come to some equilibrium across time, there is an unprecedented need which we can't meet. Mm. I'm just we've discussed this issue uh, across a couple of years on all variety of angles in terms of uh, how children cope. You know, be it uh, your, your toddlers or uh, your young people 
at school age who are really missing their friends. But what effects do we know um, uh, the pandemic are having on our children's mental health? Can you explain that a bit more for us, Tanya? Sure. So it would be fair to say that probably everyone's experienced a great deal of change in their lives um, with COVID, and certainly some more than others, but there's a great deal of um, anxiety across the population. There's a great deal of um, change, and we can see that um, particularly, although we don't have really good data to show us what's happening for children because they're not at school and they're not being seen as readily by care and protection services, they're not having access to their normal supports in family and family. Um, the markers of problems in children are all on the rise. For example, um, job loss, um, parental stress, food scarcity, issues relating to poverty, um, parental conflict, family violence is up, parental alcohol and drug use is up, parental mental illness needs um, are up. So um, whilst so we know that things are worse, and there's international evidence that demonstrates that in fact children's development is behind um, even in preschoolers and that um, oh. children have lost a huge amount of their educational opportunity. Mm. Uh, Simon, let's start with you. You have a young family at home, so let's bring you in. Yeah, what a what a difficult time. And the last thing this uh, you know crisis and sector needed was COVID, adding to the stress of it. I, I totally hear and to talk about what you're saying there around the elevated stress levels and also the isolation of not being at school and in the normal flow of um, adolescent and young school life uh, takes such a toll on kids. And all the people that we've talked with, we've, we've got um, a family experience of, of high needs um, children and the individual uh, care providers we work with are just amazing and so committed and do so much. Yeah. But the, the system is creaking. You know, it's six months for an appointment, six months uh, to wait for a review uh, of service provision. And in that time, uh, all of the, the, the stresses and difficulties are just kind of, um, you know, exacerbating. So I really feel for the people in the system who are working so hard is, um, yeah, that, that kind of six months between appointments is not, um, or to get, get appointments is, is, is not isolated to me in my experience. Okay, Tanya? Yeah, look, I absolutely agree. I think what we are managing to do is to keep up with um, acute demand. So that means people who are presenting um, suicidal or with psychosis, but um, anything that would be called non-acute, which means doesn't need to be seen this week, is falling into long waiting lists. Right, Julia, your thoughts and comments on this issue? Well, I just think that COVID would have magnified everything and children um, are like little sponges. And when they see their parents struggling and, and what's happening at home, loss of jobs, um, lack of money, you know, all of those things, a lot of children actually take it, feel that that they are part of it, that that's, can, they might have done something, even though we know they haven't, and of course they haven't. But that's how kids often think. And so you can see that this time we are experiencing now would have a hell of an effect. And I just think six months for a child to, to wait to get an appointment is like a lifetime for them, you know? Mm. Um, it's, 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 I can't... It's just a terrible situation when you think that, that all that money's gone into it and what's it done? So what does happen, what does need to happen now, Dr. Wright, in order for Aotearoa to, you know, really address this issue uh, front on? We have that uh, near $2 billion uh, money, much of it, or well, most of it, sitting there. So what needs to happen? 
I think a lot of the money that's gone into um, well-being has, has gone into well-being rather than mental health. And of course, um, I absolutely support the idea of support of addressing social determinants of health and inequities. Um, but there also does need to be support of secondary services um, who are there to address the more severe end of the spectrum for eating disorders, psychosis, major depression, self-harm, um, right across the age ranges. We, uh, there needs to be, I think, probably a greater recognition that these are services that also uh, really need a lot of attention and there's a lot of components of community care that really need to be thought about. So. Uh, holistic services, which reflect Matarangi Māori, and, but also respite, rehabilitation services, residential services, access to longer-term therapies other than ACC, um, people with skills and working with families, people with the ability to think about yeah. you know, family systems and what the, what the children need to be able to thrive. I think there's gaps everywhere. Good to have you on the programme, Dr. Wright. Uh, kia ora. That is Dr. Tanya Wright, uh, the Chair of New Zealand's Faculty of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. So you're really living this, aren't you, Simon? You've got a whānau at home and, uh, you know, young uh, young children. And I'm just thinking of my own experience, you know, a little, little, little junior, four years old, will sometimes go, mm, are there germs out there today, Daddy? And, you know, b- before we go for a walk up to the little uh, village up the road, and you just, you wonder, you do wonder, Simon Pound, what the long-term effect will be. If any, uh, kids are so resilient. You know, it's the cliche, but, are but they? it's so but true. Are they? It's so, it's no, they, so they true. Are. And you, we, we, we hope that we're, um, you know, we, we hope that this period of extra pressure and stress um, isn't hard on them. But yeah, I really feel for the kids who haven't been able to have um, the best of their social times and development over the last couple of years. You know, you know, we, we, we're not doing it harder than any. You know, than, there's so many families yeah. out there doing it. Um, Doing it, doing it so tough, and all the people who we have um, worked with in in high need spaces, and not necessarily the acute um, mental health space, but in the high need space, the people are so committed, but the the system is creaking. Right, it's uh, eighteen past four. The panel, RNZ National, nice to have you with us this afternoon. Now, last week we talked about the report that found that half of New Zealand's family doctors will be retired by 2032 as the GP shortage really does reach crisis levels. This is from a report. It was called the Future Workforce Report and it was released last week by the Royal New Zealand College of GPs. It surprised many to find that there was a 50% chance of your family doctor retiring in the next decade and 100 extra GPs needed to be trained each year just to counter the loss. But... There might be a solution or part of a solution to this. So it's a bit of a follow-up, really, to explain. We have Ginny Carrier, Professor of Nursing at Massey University and the Executive Director of the New Zealand College of Nurses, who received the New Zealand Order of Merit a couple of years back for her services to nursing. Professor Kara Kiora, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Firstly, look on the back of, I guess, that last um, panel there. Can I ask what's your sense of how nurses are coping two-plus years into this pandemic? What sort of things are you hearing? I think they're under enormous stress, particularly in the community. Um, Nurses and hospitals have been in stress for a long time. The stress has now extended right out into the community. We'll be talking about the borders opening in the next half hour, uh, and with that, some of New Zealand's young, you know, going offshore. 
um, are you concerned that nurses will go also? I think they always have and they always yeah. will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you may well have a solution because this surprised a lot of listeners, this, uh, this report here, that uh, half of New Zealand's family doctors could be retired in just a few years. What's that solution? Well, I don't, I don't suggest it's the entire solution, but yeah. I think it's a very big help, which with a small investment would make a big difference. We have a role in New Zealand known as nurse practitioner. There are already over 600 of them. They are registered nurses who've had at least four years' experience and have completed a clinical master's degree and been assessed and authorised by the Nursing Council. These nurse practitioners are legally authorised to assess, diagnose, treat, prescribe and refer and they are able then to own, operate and work in general practice as the primary provider to their own enrolled patients. What's really important about this is that the only health workforce that is still well distributed across the country is registered nurses and with a relatively small investment many of these registered nurses could be put through the master's degree so that we would have registered nurses in all of these rural areas and small towns sorry we could have nurse practitioners in rural areas and small towns where the gp shortage is biting the earliest and the fastest i got you so on a practical level jenny uh you ring your family doctor you can't get an appointment because they're booked out for the next two weeks but wait there's a nurse practitioner on hand at the clinic that can send you can see you and has access to your records and such like who can do the same tasks or similar you, you can also enroll with that nurse practitioner ah. in the way that you can enroll with a general practitioner and you can provide exact and you can receive exactly the same scope of service well 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 julia hartley moore oh, i i'm just thinking how wonderful that is um because i imagine that People, young people are still going to be flocking away overseas, um, and we're going. That's brilliant to know that that I think someone's got to put money into that to get these nurses to become nurse practitioners, so that therefore we won't have our doctor shortage, or it won't feel as as yeah. as, as obvious as it does now, because it's so, even now it's hard to get into a see a doctor. Yes. Well, you yes. Make- yeah, you make a very good point because it is a relatively small investment. Currently, government is investing in um, preparing approximately 70 nurse practitioners a year, but there are a large number of registered nurses who, with funding support, would also take that uh, journey through the master's degree. And before we go to Simon, do you think there would be a bit of support if you, uh, would a number of nurses put their hand up and go, yeah, actually, I want to take that master's course uh, and become uh, uh, an MP, a nurse practitioner? I think a lot of nurses Mm. are really enthusiastic about doing it, yes. Simon? I absolutely love this. And anything that can help mean that uh, people can have an ongoing personal relationship with their uh, whether it's the general practitioner or a nurse practitioner, is there's this big move away from people having a single relationship with one doctor or, or nurse there and into having a relationship rather with a clinic. 
And uh, although I'm sure the clinics are you, you know, doing their best to provide great um, support to them, there's really something about someone knowing you and your family and the context and okay. uh, being that single port of call for a patient. Yeah, Mike um, says, Mike says, my nurse practitioner is better than any GP I've ever seen. I want to ask you then, uh, Jenny, uh, what's, this is, sounds like a, a concrete, realisable solution to a, actually what is actually a crisis that half of all GPs in Aotearoa are to retire in what, 13 years? Um, have you m- suggested this solution to the New Zealand College of GPs? We've been talking about this solution for 20 years. We launched what? The- we launched the nurse practitioner movement in New Zealand. The first one was authorised in 2001. And, but because of the very low investment in the development of the role, we still only have 600. We could have many, many more. And just responding to that previous comment, yeah. one of the things the international data shows about nurse practitioners is that they generate huge levels of patient support. They have a particular way as nurses of working with people that makes people feel heard, that is very good at teaching people what is wrong with them, how to look after themselves. So they take that nursing approach to practice, but they've also acquired the additional school skills, which mean they can provide the full episode of care. Well, uh, Professor Carrier, um, quite a few responses, um, quite a few NP fans out there. Joe says, I have seen a nurse practitioner on a few occasions at uh, Ashburton uh, Local Practice. They're smart, curious, able to satisfy uh, all of our mental questions uh, or enabling you to move through the health system. They are excellent. Another one. I've been under a nurse practitioner for a year now here in Christchurch, and she is wonderful. It seems like the time is soon to really get this done, Jenny. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Good on you. Thanks for being on the program. Appreciate it. That is, and we'll come back to that. Actually, this is fascinating, isn't it? Uh, Professor Jenny Carrier, Professor of Nursing at uh, Mass University and Executive Director of the New Zealand College of Nurses. Uh, get your master's and uh, we could have a whole workforce ready to uh, work directly alongside GPs. You're on the panel, uh, NZ National. We have Julia Hartley-Moore and Simon Pound and a completely different topic. What is the perfect alarm? We will tell you on today's program. In fact, we'll tell you in a few seconds. But what do you wake up to? This is what I imagine Simon Pound wakes up to. So, Simon, am I right? That's your that's well, your morning wake up call. If if I did, it would be from a nightmare. <laughs> I, I got you wrong. Okay. Anyway, two re, two research two researchers at RMIT University have studied this as part of sleep research, and they ask what type of alarm provides peak alertness upon waking. And so, this is what they found. People who use alarms that carry a tune they'll readily hum along to will experience less grogginess than those with a standard beeping alarm. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is the perfect alarm. Oh, God. I thank you. So 
That is the perfect alarm. It's been researched, and yet I'm hearing audible noise of hatred from Julia Hart in war. <laughs> wow. What a, what a, what a hate monger you are. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Aren't you? Horrible. No, you are. Why? Why is that not perfect? I, look, do you know what? what? I'm very fortunate that I have a butler that wakes me, so I don't have to have an alarm clock. <laughs> and you, you laugh. This is true. And you know my butler. It's Stephen Butler, my husband. Oh, <laughs> so, you, you, yeah, but you can't, you can't always rely on the butler. You need a wake-up call, don't you? You need an alarm. Don't you? Oh, like, no, I like can't. That. You're right. You're, you're so right. I can't rely on the butler. Um, but you, you don't look, like I, it. To be fair, to be fair, I don't have I, I'm. I think I'm part vampire because I don't sleep. So I don't have an issue with well, waking up. Well, all right. Before we go to Simon, let's just hear that once again, that last one. Here we go. <laughs> Crikey, please. <laughs> Simon, Simon. You, you, you know what's always discombobulating? If you're sitting there in a cafe or in a meeting and then you hear someone who's got a ringtone that's mm. your wake-up alarm and you, it kind of catches you off guard and you go, oh, whoa, 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 hey. You see, <laughs> you see, <laughs> just me, you just see me, I love just it. I, I think it does sound perfect because, you know, you, what, what have you got? You've got that... Ding, 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 ding. You've got the um, Yamaha DX7 type uh, <laughs> notes across the bottom. You've got a little bit of nature in there. It's perfect, isn't it, Simon Pound? You wake no, up, it's, it's 6, 6 a.m. in the morning, and you hear that. It sounds, it sounds lovely. You're really setting the scene for me, um, Wallace, and I can kind of see it with the, uh, the lovely new cabin that you've got in the backyard you're broadcasting from. <laughs> I'm getting a full picture. It's lovely and the most beautiful blockhouse bay. Good on you. All right. Uh, you're on the panel uh, NZ National. By the way, Paul says, yes, the kids' well-being is a concern, but as a school principal, I would suggest the well-being of those working in schools is also at an all-time low. Dealing with COVID over the last couple of years has really exposed the lack of support for principals and resourcing of education in general. Schools have to be everything for everyone in times of crisis, and the stress and worry in the community has a massive effect on schools and those that work in them. Kia ora, Paul. Thank you for your feedback and everyone else that is um, both texting and emailing through. It is time for the headlines.